Hi, friends. I talk a lot about systems thinking on this podcast and thought I'd share one of the most potent actions you can take if you feel moved to be a different kind of leader for the 21st century. At Small Giants Academy, we developed our answer to the traditional MBA. We call it the MBE, a mastery of business and empathy. The MBE is a truly groundbreaking program which equips leaders with the tools, strategies, networks and philosophies to lead with purpose in these troubled times. Applications are open now for 2025. So head to smallgiants.com.au forward slash MBE to learn more and sign up. This podcast is sponsored by our friends at G Adventures. For over four years, they have partnered with Dumbo Feather, not only because our community, and that's you, loves to travel, but also because G Adventures and Dumbo Feather both believe in the importance of doing good for the world and protecting it for the future. This includes all of the planet's inhabitants. At G Adventures, protecting animals isn't just a one-day initiative. It's an everyday commitment to allow you, the traveller, to enjoy the incredible wildlife we share our world with and to protect these animals. G Adventures worked to create their animal welfare policy with the expertise of World Animal Protection and the Jane Goodall Institute G Adventures ensures all activities on their small group tours involving animals never exploits wildlife. Travel should be a force for good for you and for all the planet. Visit gadventures.com.au to find out more. Hello. Thanks for tuning in to the Dumbo Feather podcast. My name's Nathan, and this month we're sharing a conversation with Australian journalist David Lesser. In August this year, David released a pertinent book called Women, Men and the Whole Damn Thing about the roots of misogyny and how history brought us to the Me Too movement. Like the book, this conversation sits in some challenging questions surrounding gender at this moment in time and ultimately reminds us of our responsibility to one another as individuals striving towards wholeness and connection. David talks through his journey to writing the book, with all its challenges, insights and second guesses, with interviewer and facilitator Michaela Kalowski. David, you, like a lot of us, watched the unfolding of the Me Too movement with the extraordinary allegations and then arrest of Harvey Weinstein in 2018. And you wrote an article then for The Good Weekend. What, what grabbed you about that moment? What did you have to write about at that time? Well, it, it was the only story that I was interested in. I was invited back to write for Good Weekend and the editor, Katrina Strickland, said, we want you to write for the magazine again. What do you want to write about? And at that time, December, January, or January 2018, it was the eruption of the Me Too movement. Uh, there was this incandescent rage from women around the world. Uh, at that stage, mostly in the West, mostly in America, but um, the wire was being tripped to, to Europe and Australia. Um, and... I just thought, you know, I, 
I thought I got, I thought I understood this, and I obviously don't. I mean, a bomb did go off in my head, and it was like the place that I had been standing suddenly looked entirely different. And so I wanted to try and understand it as a man, uh, understand it as a friend to um, many women and as a father, um, as a citizen and as a journalist. So, yeah, it was to try and wrap my arms around the multiplicity of it because there was so much to try and comprehend. It wasn't just Weinstein. Weinstein came out of, you know, a number of precursive incidents and, um, you know, we can talk about that. But, um, yeah, it was an attempt to understand, which is what we do as journalists. And then from there you decided or you were, you, were in, you were invited to write the book, which is what's ended up, we've ended up with women, men and the whole damn thing. And when you, when the book was about to be released and then when it was released, you got a lot of pushback from women who were ranged between kind of confused as to why a man was writing about me too, to kind of really pissed off. Mm. And there was a sense that women didn't want you to tell their stories. They wanted to tell their own stories what does that fact alone tell us about the state of things between men and women in Australia? Well, just to correct one thing, it, it was when it was announced that I was that I'd been given a contract to write the book. That's when I got the pushback, and I had sent an email to a number of prominent feminist writers uh, asking for their help in trying to document some of the uh, uh, online sort of trolling that they'd been subjected to. And that's when this thing started. Um, and there was a story in The Guardian about uh, why it was wrong for me to be given um, a contract to write this book. This was another case of a man telling women what to think and what to feel. And we've had a gutful of it for centuries. And this is wrong. So that doesn't answer the question. Um, I think I had two questions. One is what did that tell you about the state of relations between uh, yeah. men and women? And also were you worried about taking up space at that moment? Well, you couldn't take on a subject, subject like this without being humbled, um, terrified in equal measure. Uh, I, mean, I mean, it's the most complex issue there is. Um, this is about power and desire and... Um, the way in which men use their control, the way in which men uh, act out from hurt, uh, from shame. Um, it's, it's got cultural elements and anthropological elements, biological elements, psychological elements. So, I mean, it's just the enormity of it was just overwhelming. I mean, you'd have to have lived in a cave for a long time not to know that relations between men and women were, were fraught and... Um, sometimes beautiful and sometimes somewhere in between. But we had statistics to tell us that something serious was going on on the, on, on the planet. Um, it's, it's the worst violence on the, on the planet, the violence against women. And the UN statistics, World Health Organization statistics, show us that and in Australia we know that you know on average one woman a week is killed by a current or former partner we know that 1.2 million women from the age of 15 will have, be sexually abused or assaulted um, so what it told me was there is something seriously dysfunctional 
in the way we raise men, or the way we raise boys to becoming men. And I wanted to look at what that was in some depth because it wasn't enough just to say, well, this is happening. Uh, and Me Too was profoundly important because it was, it was uh, you know, I mean, the sister network had operated for years before, you know, the social media tripped the wire and, it, and the current crossed the planet. Um, women had been talking to each, each other for, for a long time. Um, but, in fact, I was reading the, the women who broke the Weinstein story, Megan Tui and Jodie Cantor, their book, which has just come out, she said, and one of the actresses who had first outed Weinstein, Ashley Judd, had been speaking to a psychologist who talked about bonobos and what the female bonobo does when she is being um, kind of monstered by a male bonobo is she lets out a particular cry and all the other female bonobos come down from the trees and they actually protect um, the one who's in trouble. And it, it, I thought that's what happened. That's what the Me Too movement was. It was this eruption. Women all over the world saying, you were groped, you were stalked, you were felt up, you were touched up, you were raped, you were silenced, me too. And as a man, I mean, I'd worked for feminist editors, I'd profiled feminists, I'd been married to a feminist for 23 years, I considered myself a feminist, but I actually had no idea, really, what was going on. You didn't know the scope. I didn't know the scope, the depth and the scope and, and the sorrow that women carried. You know, I, I quote Geoffrey Eugenides in my book saying, you know, the weight of female suffering um, has been around me from the beginning with all its biblical justifications and vanishing acts. Women have been vanishing and have been, um, uh, been silenced and being degraded for centuries and, it's, and, it's, and there's been biblical justifications for it. And I go into that in the book. So, yeah, this, it, it was a bomb in my head. Mm. You do something quite extraordinary in this book. You're not the first person to try and do it, but to try and understand the roots of misogyny. David reads, as he said, you know, he reads anthropologists and biologists and cultural historians and academics. Um, but you're really trying to trace the evolution of misogyny in a really fascinating way in the book. How, now having read and synthesised everything you have, how do you explain the origin of this hatred? How would you describe it? Well, the short answer is it's complex. Um, and the hatred goes hand in hand with the desire. Um, this is kind of what makes it so hard to grasp, but it, it helps explain how a woman who can be the object of a man's desire will suddenly go from being an enchantress to being scorned and being abused and often worse. Um, that hatred and desire sit side by side. But I, I go back to, you know, in my um, reading, um, I go back to, and my research, I, 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 I posit the notion that there might have been a time when the patriarchy wasn't 
ever-present, that there might have been a, a period of history that was pre-patriarchal, and if that was the case, there might be a time when the, the, the patriarchy ends. And I think that there is enough evidence, because there's no written record, so that's why it makes this difficult, but there's enough evidence from, um, from clay tablets and from figurines and from sculptures and from archaeological digs and from anthropological research and paleontology and all the rest of it, that in foraging hunter-gatherer societies in many, many parts of the world, and not all, obviously, because I'm not trying to glorify the, you know, the sort of noble savage in inverted commas, that there was a time when women and men had far greater equality. Sex was a shared resource. A man didn't control a woman's sexuality. And, you know, there are early Greek historians like uh, Herodotus and Diodorus Siculus who, who document ancient Egypt and ancient Libya where women were warriors and where women were lawmakers and, and in the case of ancient Libya where the men stayed at home and looked after the children and women went out to work. And of course across the Middle East and Europe and Asia there was no worship of gods, of, the male, of a male god until around 2500 BC, according to Robert Graves, the, the great mythologist. So women in the Middle East and Europe worshipped a goddess, the goddess, and she went by different names in different societies throughout the world. Um, she was Istat and Canaan and she was um, Bridget and Ireland and she was Nuwa in China and she was the ancient goddess, the ancient mother and it was at that point in two, around 2500 BC when the Indo-Europeans invaded Asia from Europe, they brought with them a masculine idea of the creator. So this didn't just happen at one time, it, it, it was a, a series of, of events and evolutions that, that changed the nature of how men and women related to one another and and in fact Robert Graves talks about the first time it was ever actually recorded that men might have something to do with that coitus actually directly affects you know children that it, it, that a mother that a woman was not um, she didn't get impregnated by the moon or the stars or the river actually a guy had something to do with it that actually started to change the way um, men regarded their role. And so th the idea of the goddess gradually got eroded. And as the goddess got eroded in history, so too did women's rights before the law, their rights in the public square, and their sexual rights. And then the emergence of the monotheistic faiths, you know, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam um, took that to greater extremes. But we have been living with that uh, ever since. Why do you think masculinity expresses itself by debasing the feminine, by debasing women? Well, healthy masculinity doesn't. But the models of masculinity we've been presented, I think, 
does debase the feminine because I think men are at war with themselves. We're all made up of masculine and feminine parts and it's hard to kind of talk about this without sounding too new age but you know Jungian therapists look at it in terms of the animus and the anima. Um, Chinese look at it in terms of yin and yang so we have you know if the female side is more intuitive and more uh, collaborative and more empathetic and the ma- and the masculine side is more rational and logic driven we all have a combination of those things we all have those qualities we are gifted those qualities from birth but it's our socialization uh, that begins to shame th- those feminine aspects and when i and so boy i mean i'm not the first person to say this many people authors of and journalists have written about this that boys are taught to um, view their emotions as inappropriate um, not to cry not to be weak not to be seen as vulnerable to always be in control so what does that do to a man if he's had those kinds of normal emotions that should be available to everyone shamed from an early age by a culture um, he's going to struggle in relationship. He's not going to know what to do when emotions, when life gets complex. And he could explode, and he does explode. And, and what you direct externally, what a man directs externally at women, what men are ex- directing on unbelievable scales, I think is directly related to their own relationship to the feminine. So in some ways it's better, to, it's, it's more appropriate to be talking about masculine and feminine rather than men and women. When you were writing the book, um, you talk a lot about patriarchy in the book and you try and unpack patriarchy as well as misogyny, but they're different things. How do they overlap? Because you also say very powerfully in the book that patriarchy fails everyone. If you're a man in a patriarchal society, you're bound to do a bit better than women because it's patriarchal, but at the same time, it, it, it annihilates everyone, women, children, men as well. Mm. Where's the overlap between patriarchy and misogyny, between that expression of patriarchy? Yeah, it's an interesting question. You know, patriarchy is a multi... It's a hydra, it's a multi-headed beast. It, it manifests in, in every walk of life. The, the way we legislate, the way we conduct our work practices, the way we design buildings, it's, um, the way we view women... Patriarchy is a system. To me, patriarchy is a system um, that operates through, over and under all of us. And as you say, it, it hurts not just women, but it hurts most men. Most men who are not holding power, it hurts in some way. Misogyny, though, is, 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 is a kind of is a virus. It's, a, it's something that was kind of almost like dropped in the water supply or a seed was planted and it's been propagated. And, and that seed is that, and this is related to how we hold these, how we hold the wholeness of masculine and feminine, how we, how we actually come to see ourselves as integrated or not. That's where stereotypes can become so crippling. But I thought about it a lot as a, you know, being of Jewish... Um, you know, my parents were Jewish and so I was 
I was never a religious Jew, but I thought about well, the origins of anti-Semitism and um, how it's just been consistent uh, through Europe and America, mainly the West. And you don't have to; you just have to look at the, the scriptures to see um, it was the idea of of the Jew being the Christ killer, and the way in which that then became talked about in the scriptures, that that seed that was propagated just spread. And you didn't even have to know, you didn't even have to be religious, you didn't have to go to church, but it was just in the air you breathed. Mother's milk, in mother's milk, yeah. they say. And I think it's the same with misogyny. I think it's that, that these, the ideas, the, fe- the feminine qualities of, of empathy, of collaboration, you know, everything that is antithetical to the hyper-masculinist, terrifying world we live in, that those qualities come from a place way back in history where um, uh, women lost their place in society and where the feminine became became degraded. Um, And so it's not just one thing, but I, I just, I see misogyny and patriarchy as different. I think misogyny comes out of the of a, a kind of systemic, of a belief system, yeah. I want to come back a bit to the Me Too movement, although I must say when you read the book, if you haven't already, the book is largely really not about the Me Too movement. It takes that as a starting off point. It's kind of one seventeenth of the book, David and I were joking. Um, and the rest of the book is really what's gone wrong with men, what's going on with men and how do we change that. Um, but I do want to come back to the Me Too movement because there's some really important um, ideas that you discuss in the book about, around it. The, we think about Weinstein as the big fish, but the stories that started to come up in Australia and overseas were of all the people who were, had power withheld from them, who had opportunities withheld from them, women who were abused or harassed in ways that made it hard for them to walk to work, to live, to earn. What's chilling about the Weinstein case is all that, that complicity that enabled that behaviour. And I, I wondered if you had any thoughts on... How do you challenge that kind of complicity? How do men challenge that kind of complicity that makes that predatory behaviour possible and permissible? Well, that's one of the reasons I've written the book. Um, Because, you know, the audience I really want for this book is men, boys and men. Um, I mean, there are a lot of um, great men doing great things um, to change this and to challenge this um is it enough um no obviously quite clearly it's not enough you know there's one of the things about growing up as a man is what you get from other men you know you get it from a very early age as a boy as a as a boy if if you like a girl there's that whole thing of well you know what kind of nancy boy are you you know, there's a the bullying in male culture is so pervasive and restrictive and, quite frankly, terrifying. So you've got a choice between siding with the feminine or going along with your mates. I mean, the Irish rape case, the rugby uh, players who were uh, charged and eventually acquitted with raping that woman, I mean, that that whole story was about what you will do to measure up with your mates, measure up to your mates. 
what do you do in casual conversation when there's a misogynist joke? Do you stand up to it? I mean, I can't answer the question about what do men do. I, it's like what, I can only say what I'm trying to do. I think men, I mean, I, I'm now just contradicting myself, I think men could start listening. I think uh, what this book is, is an act of listening. It's an attempt to listen at a, at a deep, deep level. So I think men could actually think about the fact that they have mothers and sisters and daughters and friends and that the women that, that they know are carrying around this pain. And this pain is expressing itself for good reason. Because th this is a response, this is a modern response to an ancient crusade. And so, you know, my call out to, to men, if, they, if they're open, is to be open to what women are trying to say. There's a real problem and, and there are, there are no corporation can, today can afford to ignore this stuff. I mean, they do so at their peril. 60% of, of the talent that's emerging through universities throughout the world are women. So if you want to, in the war for talent, if you want the best women, you cannot afford to have a corporate culture um, that uh, doesn't take this kind of seriously. And there's a lot of male executives who are starting to get that. So it's interesting mm. that it's in, sometimes in the, in the uber-capitalist sphere that those changes are being made. So you interview a fantastically interesting woman called Aviva Wittenberg Cox, um, yeah. Wittenberg Cox in the book, um, and she writes about the way that gender in the workplace is often viewed as a women's issue. And she said, we have to stop viewing it as a women's issue. It's not a women's issue. It's an everyone's issue. It's not he for her. It's we for we. Yeah, talk about talent. Mm. Talk about um, who's the best person for the job. Don't talk about I'm female friendly because that's just going to alienate mm. women and or, or divide, divide women and men. Actually say, this is, we just got the best person for this job. But if also what you're saying is an acknowledgement of the intricacies and difficulties of being a man in this age, then maybe there are also men who will also benefit from difference, differences in work culture and being able to leave earlier and being able to reschedule things so it supports them having a better mental health or a better family life. There are other ways of balancing things that, that will help men as well as women and therefore help everyone. Well, none of us have ever lived in a, in a kind of world which is not patriarchal. And... and, and to replace all the men in power with women who are still operating according to the sort of patriarchal system is not to replace the system. It's just to replicate it with, with women who have imbibed the patriarchy like we all have. But to have a culture, an ethos, uh, an operating principle in the world where these more feminine ideas of collaboration and empathy and, and um, reverence for, for the earth and um, the sacredness of the, the land that we, we walk on. I mean, is it, climate change and the catastrophe we're facing is, is a direct corollary of living in this hyper-masculinist world. So for all of us, we would be we would be fit for a happier future if we change the cultures that we're living under. I want to come back to something you were talking about earlier in, in tonight's conversation when you were talking about the, the way that men are conditioned to behave, when you, the kind of the, the natural bullying that exists, the way that men have to 
cooperate with other men in a way that is debasing to women, the way that cuts you off from your emotional world. You, you write about it a lot in the second half of the book. Stephen Bidoff, the great Australian writer on Raising Boys and Raising Girls, calls it The Mask. Um, Tony Porter calls it The Man Box, this deep concealment or rejection um, of a man's inner world. What, how did these ideas, ideas strike a nerve with you personally? There were certain aspects about you know, the man box that were there in my growing up you know, which you would show on the football field or you would show in kind of um, kind of group communication with other guys at school. But it, for me, it felt slightly different because um, I think, we, you know, my father, as I write in the book, my father always called me darling all his life. Um, he always kissed me hello, um, you know, good morning, always kissed me in the evening, good night. Um, we had many, many, many conversations over my life about matters of the heart. One of the things Steve Biddulph, Biddulph writes about is that if, you know, through his 30 years in this space, the majority of men, when they talk about their fathers, they talk about, 30% would talk about or 40% perfunctory matters, um, if at all. Another you know, 20, 30% would, you know, have congenial conversations around, you know, you know, the gardening or sport or whatever. Very, very few men would say, my father is my confidant, my father is my friend, um, I, I have this heart kind of relationship with my father. I did. And, and so in that sense, that made me feel very different to practically every guy I knew. I mean, one of my closest friends, um, uh, he's, he's, he died about 10 years ago, but he told me this story about, uh, and this is in the book too, but he told me that his name was Neil and he told me this story about when he went to kiss his father goodnight, he'd done that all his life up until his 10th birthday. On his 10th birthday, um, his father said, no, son, we'll shake hands. Now you're a man. And, uh, and Neil remembered being both chuffed, you know, that he'd been anointed a man and crestfallen that something precious, something priceless had been taken from him. And it took 22 years for them to hug again and his father had come over to his house in Queanbeyan. By this stage, Neil was this big, strapping sculptor, big arms and bald head and beautiful man. And, and his father went to shake his hand goodnight and Neil said, Dad, just hug me. Uh, it's, it's been too long. And they hugged each other and they, burst in, they both burst into tears. And that just taught me so much about how so many boys grow up without that um, without that touchstone. And you mentioned Tony Porter. He has a similar thing. He describes the man box and he was guilty of it himself in the way he raised his boy and his son and his daughter. And whenever his daughter would cry, 
come here, darling, sit on daddy's knee, daddy's got you. And if his son cried, and his, um, he'd say, no, you go to your room, you've got 30 seconds to get yourself together, and then you come out, uh, and you come out and you behave like a man. He was five years old. And he just sort of thought, where does this come from? And he realised that it came from his father and it came from his father's father and it gets passed down the line and, 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 and we wonder why um, there is so much, um, there's so much male violence against women and against themselves and each other, uh, uh, oneself and other men. So that's where I found myself, I, that there was part of my culture that was, that was obviously part of the dominant culture about how you prove yourself as a man but I had something else that I think helped rescue me from that which was this soft place to land often with my father. Thank you David and Michaela for covering such complex ground with spaciousness and care. You can get your hands on women, men and the whole damn thing via David's website davidlesser.com or do it the new fashion way and grab a copy at your local bookstore. Dumbo Feather is produced on the lands of the Yalukut Willem clan of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nations. I acknowledge the wisdom and custodianship of elders past, present and emerging. Big thanks to Lizzie Martin for editing this podcast and Dennis, as always, for the tunes. If you love the work we do at Dumbo Feather, please support us by becoming a subscriber. We deliver worldwide. This podcast is sponsored by our friends at EcoStore. We've been working with EcoStore for years to share their ethos of safer products for home, body and baby, made with respect for the environment. Every product is made from naturally derived ingredients, selected because they are safer and more sustainable. You can find EcoStore products in Woolworths, Coles and Chemist Warehouse and learn more about how they are doing their part for a better tomorrow at ecostore.com.au.